has heard some crazy ideas about the book of Revelation? Who has seen someone on a stage with a board and they've got all these different lines and arrows and dates and this is this person and this is this one and this is when this is going to happen? Have you guys seen all that? I will not name names, but they are on TV and they make lots of money doing that. When, of course, we get the one clear thing in Scripture that says what? No one knows the time or the hour of the return of the Son of God. But, of course, who can resist, right? There's these images and these dates, and maybe it's talking about this, and maybe it's talking about that. Maybe the Antichrist is Putin. (laughs) About eight years ago, uh, this topic came up, and it was just the biggest thing in the church eight years ago. So many people were calling pastors and had this this hunger for it. And so uh, if if you look back eight years ago, the bestsellers in Christian books eight years ago was all the books due at the end time. What happened eight years ago? President Obama. Yeah, quiet. Was that you? We had all these, uh, these Christians, you know, saying, oh my goodness, this man has to be it. His first name, and his name sounds like he's from, he sounds Muslim, Right? Surely this is the Antichrist and the world is going to end. About, uh, what was it, about nine months ago, a uh, very public figure, uh, he went on TV and he's talking about how uh, there was this, this moment, oh, what was it? it? It was some kind of a special blood moon. Yeah, you guys remember that? I won't name names. He went on TV and he had the best ratings of his entire career. And he was saying, this is the ultimate super mega blood moon. It's the red moon of blood that is talking about in the book. It's happening. I had people in this church calling me saying, should we be getting ready? Is it over? Because this man was so convinced. So why bother? Because we've gone for hundreds of years, and we've had all these different opinions. There's all these different ways to interpret it. And, and really what it shows us is this book is difficult. It's hard to understand. There's all this imagery and symbolism. And so what's literal? What's not literal? What's, what's a symbol? What's not a symbol? What, how do we know anything about this book? It's so complex, by the way, that it's one of the last books that was actually brought into the canon, meaning it's one of the last books that actually officially made part of the Bible because it took many years of arguing over it to say, does this book even fit in the Bible? Because it seems to be so different from everything else in the Bible. And for a book to be made canon, for a book to be put into the Bible, to be part of the Bible, it has to be cohesive. It has to match the rest of the Bible. And it took years of arguing over this book. So with all this said, actually before that, who here has never really wanted to read it? You've heard about it, but you just rather just keep your distance. Who's that? Come on, be honest. Who's rather... that? That'd be me, by the way. I'd rather just keep my distance. Who here is like the extreme where you've always been obsessed with Revelation? Okay. It's hard to find people in the middle in this, by the way. Either you could care less about the book, or you are, you've always been so curious and passionate about it. Um, whenever we have people who, who come to the church who are curious about uh, Christianity, we often get people who either it's just they've gone through a painful uh, situation in life, or they come to us and go, Hey, so what about this book? It's crazy. 
I did a short little video on Facebook yesterday. Blew up. Talking about the end times. Can't wait. So, again, the question, why bother with this book? What is the point to it? What can we really get out of it? Um, If we've had so many Christians who have lived out their life either not messing with this book or so many Christians who have lived out their life, you know, having a wrong understanding of this book, why do we even need it? Why not just kind of toss it out? Here's why. The biggest thing that we need to understand about this book before we dive in is revelation of Jesus, which is the, the theme of this book. John writes this, and his intent is that his hearers have gone hundreds of years of learning about the Messiah who is going to come, all the promises of God. They have just read and witnessed his gospel, the gospel of John. They've just heard that Jesus the Messiah, he is the fulfillment of all the promises of thousands of years of God. And so everything that God ever promised is going to be fulfilled in Jesus. Now, they also know that this Jesus is dead, or he might be alive, but he's not on the earth, right? And so even though they know Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises, here's the question. How is Jesus going to bring everything to pass? Meaning, okay, I believe that Jesus is going to do it, but here's the question. How will Jesus do it? Does that make sense? He says that it's, we understand that in Jesus, God's going to take control of the earth. He's going to make everything right. He's going to throw out death and violence and rape and lust. In Jesus, he's going to make the dead rise. So all of my loved ones who have died, I'm going to get them back. When Jesus is in control, there won't be sickness or death or illness. So my friend who has cancer, when Jesus comes back, he wouldn't have cancer. Okay. So if I believe that about Jesus, the question still remains. It's this if-then thing, meaning if Jesus really is, then how is it going to happen? And when is it going to happen? And so John writes this book called Revelation, meaning the the revealing, the, the final making clear, the final explanation of who Jesus is and ultimately how he's going to make good on his promises. So for us, the book of Revelation is crucial for this big reason. It helps us have a peep, a small glance, into how God, through Jesus, is going to make all the promises that he's ever made come to pass. The book of Revelation is about God making good on his promises. That's why we bother with it. That's why we wrestle with it. That's why we, we take the time to go through all of this frustrating information. So the goal here is this. I'm going to try to lead us into each of these sections of the book, and I'm going to try to make it as easy as possible. With that being said, it probably won't be the easiest. So here's what I want you to do. As you guys have questions, I want you guys to turn in your questions, okay? Uh, you can write it on a piece of paper on anything you want. Uh, you can email the church, but I want you to turn in any questions that you have as we go through this series. On the last Sunday, we're going to have, have an entire Sunday to answer those questions. And then on top of that, the following week after we end the series, uh, myself and some of the pastors are going to be at Starbucks all night for you to come and sit down with us to answer what we didn't answer 
in this series or the Q&A. Sound good? And then if you still have questions, we're going to do a class about it in three months. But not now. Because here after this series, we're going to be sick of Revelation. All right, here we go. Here's the things. Now, before we dive in, uh, into the text, it's important for us to understand some tips. Okay, some tips on how do we understand this book? How do we read it? Uh, how do we approach it? Um, if you're taking notes, here's, here's the first tip. Listen, listen like it's a song. Here's what this means. There are multiple ways to say things, right? So, if I were being extremely literal, I would say, Nisa, I miss you. Okay? If I were writing a song, poetry, if I felt extremely emotional that day, I'd say, Nisa, I hunger and thirst for you. <laughs> then everybody goes, awkward. <laughs> Creeper, right? Okay. Yeah. Cover your ears, Arnie. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. It doesn't literally mean that I want to eat and drink, right? Okay. It's expressive language. It's dramatic. It's meant to, how you put this, to take my meaning and to blow it up because I want everyone to know how I feel, right? It's the difference between, you know, having a note and you pass a note to someone. Hey, if you like me, check. Yes, no, maybe. Or having a plane fly, you know, over a ball game saying, I love this woman. Makes sense? It's the difference. Okay, so the first thing is this. I want you, as we enter into the book of Revelation, understand this. Listen to it as if it's a song. It's written a lot more like a modern-day song than it is, say, say, a map, for example. Often with this book, we want to read it like it's a manual or it's a map. So it's telling us, okay, so take two steps here. Look for the X. Here's the blood moon. Got it. Take three steps over here. Okay, here's the Antichrist. Here's earthquakes. Here's wars. Here's a dragon. Okay, it's not a map. It's not a manual. There are real, concrete, literal things which are being talked about, but they're being talked about in very dramatic, hyperbole is the word for that, very dramatic, artful, I hunger and thirst language. Okay? Now, have you guys ever read uh, Old Testament prophets like Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah, things like that? Okay, Ezekiel. Have you ever noticed how just crazy the language they use is? And I saw the wheel within a wheel and eyes all over the creature, and this creature was covered. In, you know, have you guys ever seen that? And you go, whoa, this guy was on something, correct? Again, He's seeing things, but these are symbols. These are, these are ways of communicating something to someone that they've never, ever experienced before. For example, if we were to take someone from the 1900s and show them an airplane, they would go, 1700s, whatever. 1700s, the Stone Age. If we were to take, okay, whatever, okay. Smart butt in the front row. <laughs> you know, take someone who's never seen a car before, you know, and they see a car and they go, 
It was a carriage with no wheels, and it had stone on the, you know, I mean, again, you know, it had bright lights, you know, extruding from the interior. I mean, again, you'd just be freaked out. This is language we're trying to get a grip on something that we, that we have never seen or experienced before. And so we're trying to get a hold on it. And so sometimes with language, when we don't know exactly how or what something is, we have to use a bunch of words to kind of cover the bases. If I can't draw something, I have to kind of make an outline of it. That makes sense. And so the first thing in all this is understand that we have to listen to this and understand it has very dramatic language. It's talking about real things, but it's talking about them in such an extravagant, dramatic way. If you read the entire book thinking it's, you know, literal, you will be walking around looking for dragons. I don't think you're going to find it. I'm just saying. Second thing, imagine, meaning use your imaginations. Imagine like it's a play, meaning you're only hearing words, but I want you to imagine as if you're seeing this play out in front of you. Um, Pastor Zach did a good job of reading this, but he didn't read it the way it's supposed to be read. (laughs) Okay, now, Revelation and with all the epistles, when they would send a messenger out, when they would take it from the apostle or whoever, they would spend days with the author, and they would go through every line. At this moment, I want you to pause. I want you to say this word quietly. Say this word loud, and I want you to just, and again, it's almost like acting out something. They would tell them exactly how to convey the message. Because if I say, I don't like you, it's different if I say, I don't like you. Make sense? So everything in this letter, when it was being read, because if you notice, it's talking about a special blessing for the person who reads this, the person who goes through all the effort to be a steward, to portray this in the purest way that they received from the Apostle John. There is such, it's supposed to bring you into it. Now, they didn't have TV back then or YouTube, okay? I'm, I'm sure that John would have gone like Facebook Live if he could have back then, you know? But he didn't have these things. And so when he's locked away on an island by himself dying, he has no way to get the message fully across the way he wants to. Um, How about this? Texting. How many times have you offended someone texting? You say, I didn't mean it like that. I meant it like it takes you 100 words to say one sentence. Because language needs more than just words. So everything in this book was meant to be, if you would, acted out to bring all of it to life. The idea is to immerse you in it. The idea was that when you're hearing it, it's almost like you're experiencing it. It's almost like you're watching it on a stage. It's unfolding for you. And so again, that's why this entire thing is so dramatic and big. Third thing, after you have listened to it like it's a song, you imagine it like it's a play. Third thing, learn the lingo, meaning... He's writing to people who live at a certain time. There are certain words. There's almost, it's almost like pop culture. Um, who remembers the 90s? Okay. It's almost like the word snap. Oh, snap. Have you guys heard that in the last year? No one says snap anymore, okay? Uh, I said that when I went to, go to school, okay? Oh, snap. If I were to write that today in a text to someone who's 15, who wasn't alive in the 90s, I said, hey, oh, snap. (laughs) 
it's lost on them. Does that make sense? And so there's language and, and, and there's images and there's symbols that have some very concrete meaning for them that to us don't. 9-11, if I say that, it conjures an image for you. It conjures an experience. It takes you back because you were there. If I say that to one of our high school kids in the youth, they just stare at me. Oh, I think we talked about that in class one day, right? But if I say it to you, you remember exactly where you were when you heard the news. The emotions that came over you. It was powerful. And so again, there are things that he uses. There's images. There's words like Babylon. That to us, Babylon is just babble. It means nothing to us. When he says Babylon to them, they know exactly what he's talking about. When he says dragon, they know exactly what he's talking about, whereas to us we think of a dragon flying around breathing fire. So just remember, there's a lingo. We have to learn the lingo. We have to understand that there's things they're saying that we have to do some work to figure out what they meant to them. Fourth thing, we've got to find how it fits. Here's a very important thing. There are many pastors and theologians and teachers who have tried to teach the book of Revelation as if it's something that is supposed to, how you put it? They've taught it as if there's the Bible and then there's Revelation. Meaning you have this image of this Messiah who's going to restore the world, and you have Jesus who comes. He has the chance to conquer the world with angels and with fire and with doom and power, but he doesn't. He dies on a cross. He sacrifices his life, and then all of a sudden he comes back to do what he could have done in the first place. He comes back with armies and with fire, and he destroys everything anyway. Why didn't he do it in the first place? Did you ever think about that? And so we have to interpret or understand this book in a way to where it fits into the rest of the Bible. Um, imagine this. It's almost like a puzzle. Have you guys ever had like a puzzle that was, you know, like a large one, like say like 900 pieces, something like that? You know, it's large. So when you get that last piece, the puzzle now is very tight, okay, when you get all those pieces. So, so if you have a piece going in the middle, it takes a little work to push it in there, into place. Revelation is the last piece to the puzzle of the image of who, who God is and what he's going to do on the earth. And we have to make sure that we make the piece fit the puzzle, not the puzzle fit the piece. Does that make sense? Here's the last tip for understanding this book. We have to catch the big picture. It's so easy for us to kind of get fixated, um, if you would, on the details, on the images. Again, the questions I always get are always about the Antichrist. It's about the millennium. It's about the throne room. It's about, you know, again, it's about the dramatic things. I mean, the questions I get about this book probably take up about seven sentences in the entire book of Revelation. I don't get questions about any of the rest of it, just those seven little points. We have to make sure that we see the big picture of what the entire book is talking about and the way that book connects into the bigger book, which is the Bible. Here's the thing about this book. Revelation is about Christ. It's not about the Antichrist. It's about hope, not fear. It's about justice, not vengeance. It's about completion, how God completes what he's doing. It's not a failure. It's not because the world fails or God fails and it's to destroy. It's how God is going to complete what he always promised he would do. And it's not about the final ending. I kind of did a little tricky thing with the title. 
I put how it ends. Meaning, I didn't put how it all ends, how everything ends. I said how it ends. And there are certain things that find their end when Christ returns. Death finds its end when Christ returns. Sickness, anger, violence, these things find their end. Sex trade, injustice, they find their end when Jesus returns. But there are other things that don't find their end. You do not find your end when He returns. Earth does not find its end. Heaven does not find its end. You and earth and the heavens and all the creatures and all the world, all existence, everything doesn't find its end. Everything finds its new beginning. In the book of Revelation, it picks up where Genesis left off, and it has this phrase, the new heaven and the new earth. Because he doesn't throw anything away. It is, it's the next chapter of living, the next chapter of existence, the next chapter of thinking and feeling and being and knowing and connecting and doing things. It's the next chapter of life. It's not the final end of life. And when you see the big picture in this book, this book becomes something that's encouraging and it's life-giving. And it's very important for us to understand this. Are you guys ready to keep going? And those are tips on how to understand it. Let's go ahead and jump into the first uh, section of it. You guys ready? Everyone says no. Not at all. All right, chapter one. Well, chapter 1, we get this beginning where John begins to kind of outline the purpose of the book. Now, if you guys would go to Revelation 1, uh, verse 3, something very important here. It said, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Now, often when we're interpreting this this book, we're trying to understand it, trying to grapple with it. We go to verse 19 and 18, where it talks about prophecies of the future things to come, and we're kind of skipping ahead, if you would. This book is about one primary thing. The heart of this book is very simple. It's about those who hear it and take it to heart because, meaning this book is being written to people who are, who are in the middle of a hard time and are about to experience an even harder time. This is in the middle of a place where all the disciples, all the apostles have already been murdered. They're already dead. There's one left in John, and he is imprisoned on an island. He's not able to encourage the church in person. And he's trying to tell them, this is just the beginning. You're about to be martyred and hunted and persecuted and pressured, and your kids are going to experience it. Your wives are going to experience it. You cannot escape what's coming for you if you stand for Christ. You will be persecuted. We're not talking about bullying at school or about, you know, like the, the coworker be feeling, you know, uh, awkward around us. We're talking about martyrdom, being murdered, being imprisoned. And he's saying to them, guess what? Here I am. And he goes on even in this passage talk about how he's their partner in suffering is how he calls it. And he talks about how we are those who inherit the kingdom from Christ, and we also inherit suffering from Christ. 
Because to follow him, we're about to go into a hard time. And this letter is meant for one primary purpose, that they would hear it and that they would allow it to seep in, that they would hold fast, that they would persevere because they're about to hit a storm. What's so backwards about the way most of us have understood this, this book, the way most of us have been taught this book, is that this book has done almost everything else but encourage most of us. It's done everything else but bring comfort or peace to most of us. Now, I'm sure there's some weirdos in here. Okay, how many of you, when you guys read about the, the fire and dragons and all this stuff, were like, I'm encouraged? How many? Yeah, you're weird. It's okay. We love you anyway. It's okay. But for most people, when they hear about the blood moons and the Antichrist, it brings fear, anxiety. Oh, no. And most people respond by just closing it and pushing it away. The entire intent of this letter is to encourage us, to bring peace to our hearts, to prepare us. And I encourage you, uh, in your home time, in your, your own time this week, to read chapter one and, and like read it. I mean, like really read it as if it's the first time and you'll notice all these things. And now the Apostle John mentions, hey, Jesus is the king of the earth. He is the one who protects us. He sustains us. And he goes into this image about lampstands. And, and it's this whole thing about saying, hey, you, you don't have to fear. He's in control. I know he hasn't done it yet. He's in control. And even if you die, even if you're persecuted, he has you. He has you. You're safe. Don't, don't worry about it. And so chapter 1 is all about those, is all about speaking to us that we would hear it and that we would take it to heart, that we would know what it means to follow Christ. To follow Christ without compromise means that we will face opposition. Just some details about chapter 1. He goes into all these images of, of Jesus. He's got the white hair and the bronze feet and, you know, all these different images. And just understand with all, with all the imagery and the symbolism, he's rooting Jesus in the Old Testament, in the Messiah. He's rooting Jesus in, in the book of Daniel, in the book of Isaiah, Jeremiah. He's explained to his readers, don't forget what we've learned. This man, Jesus, is the one who's going to make everything right. So that's the reason that we, you have all the imagery there in chapter 1. All right. Are you guys ready to get to the letters to all the churches? No. Okay. Cool. All right. Let's make it fast. There are, there are seven letters to seven churches. Now, we know that there, at this time there's actually more churches than just seven, but uh, the number is very important. Okay, completion. This book is all about bringing things to completion, to their end. And so if you notice in this book, seven is everywhere in this book. So he, he, he writes these letters to seven churches. Now, these letters, they all go the same way. There are basically five components. If you guys want to throw that up there, I'll just kind of walk through it. There are five components. These letters all start with this idea that it gives us an image of Christ. The second thing it does, it gives us an encouragement Meaning he says, okay, here's who Christ is, and it's always very specific to the people. Meaning it's, it's almost like uh, if you were sick in the hospital, the first way that I would start my letter to you is I'd say, hey, don't forget Jesus is the healer. 
that makes sense? And so, and so he starts with an image of Christ that's pertinent, that means something to what they're going through. And so he starts with an image of Christ. He encourages them. He says something about, you know, something good they've been doing. And then there's correction. There's always this place where he encourages and then he corrects. If you're a pastor or a counselor, you have to learn this. You got to build people up before you spank them. Okay. You guys, okay, okay. So encouragement, correction, and then a challenge. Okay, here's what you've done well. Here's what, here's what you failed. So I want you to, to do this. Here's the challenge for you. And then it always concludes with the hope, meaning here's the challenge. It's going to be hard. I want you to shoot for this bar. But if you make it to this bar, here's what you're going to get on the other side. If you would run to the finish line, here's what's on the other side of the finish line. Now, an example of this is from uh, Revelation uh, 3, 1 through 6, if you're taking notes. Uh, it's the church of Sardis. And so basically what he says to them, the image of Christ, seven spirits, seven stars, encouragement, hey, you've been faithful. The correction, you've been faithful, but you're spiritually dead on the inside. That's always nice to hear from Jesus. His challenge to them is, hey, you're dead on the inside, so here's what I want you to do. Wake up. Now, I chose this one because I think it kind of fits most of us here in the West. Yes, you've done well, but here's the truth. You're dead on the inside. Okay. So the challenge is wake up. And if you wake up, what's going to happen on the other end of waking up, if you make the finish line, you're going to be seen as faithful. Meaning, if you make it to the end, I won't even remember all those years of you being spiritually dead and caring about everything else in the world. If you make it to the end, if you stand through persecution, the way the world, the way everyone who makes an eternity is going to see you is in the white robes of Christ, you will be seen as faithful. Exciting. I have to go fast. I apologize. All right, here we go. Now, what's all this mean? What do we take out of chapters 2 through 3? Here's your first thing. The main heart that's being communicated in this to all seven churches is this. Will they compromise or stay fully devoted to Jesus in the face of pressure and temptation? Now, we don't have time to go into all seven letters but the underlying message from Christ is this. The pressure is being turned up. There once was a time when the church was, was hidden in Jerusalem. There once was a time whenever it, it was accepted. But that time has now changed. The world is turning on the church. The church used to be harmless, but now it's a threat. It wasn't a big deal to be a follower of Christ of the way, but now it's a threat to Caesar. The challenge is this. As the world begins to press you, as they begin to test you, will you stand? Will you compromise? In the challenge for all of the seven churches, there was an area of compromise in every single one of them. And the question was, okay, I know you've compromised, but here's this. Will you stand faithful now? Now this transcends history. This speaks right to us today. Compromise is not just going to see a bad movie or, you know, cursing. Compromise is will you allow your life to center on the things that your culture tells you your life is about? And it's different for every part of the world. For us, we know what this world is about. Will you allow your life to be about money and things? Will you allow this culture to tell you what's important? Will your life look just like everyone else around you, or will it look different? 
when people look at your life, will they see a witness of what matters in the world? And the interesting note that's tagged on to the end of every single one of these letters, all seven, they all end with the same phrase. It says this, uh, Revelation 3.13, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying. It's very interesting. Jesus used that phrase a lot. He never talked about the Spirit because He was there speaking. And so, in essence, Jesus is speaking through John the same challenge. He says, will you be willing to, if you would, not ignore me? Would you let your ears hear this, if you would, your heart absorb this? Because the one speaking on the earth now is the Spirit who comes from Christ. And we see the Holy Spirit now as the one out who's speaking now the things from God. And so what happens for us in our own lives, where this stuff hits us, if you would compromise and challenge from God, is the Holy Spirit. You will find the Spirit is speaking to you and tugging on you in all these crucial areas of your life. And the challenge for us is, are we going to compromise, to ignore, to, if you would, just learn to kind of shrug off His voice? Or will we allow those little things that He speaks to us, those little nudges, those little desires to, to put God first, to, to take care of our marriage the right way, to put things right with our children? Will we follow this? Now, here's the biggest takeaway. If, you know, we've gone through a lot of information very quickly, but here's the big thing that I want you to walk out of here with. Here's the big challenge of, of chapters 1 through 3 in the book of Revelation. It's this. Will we st stay attentive to the Spirit and faithful to Jesus and like Jesus? Here's what this means. If we make room in our lives to be sensitive to the voice of God, it will prod and lead us into two things. To stay fully committed to Jesus. And because we're committed to Jesus, we are going to live what? Like Jesus. This is a challenge. Because everything in your life will push you the opposite. When you get wronged at work, if I am shutting down the Spirit of God, the response I'm going to have is the same response everyone else in the office is going to have. I'm going to look out for me and mine. I'm going to put that person straight. I'm going to tell them my mind because I've got the right to. I'm going to get what's mine. In all this, it always takes us back to the teachings of Christ. To be faithful to Christ is to imitate Christ. Here's what it is. If you desire to be someone who's standing with Jesus on the other side of the end. When he comes to make all things right and he wipes away and we start clean and there, and there is eternity in front of us, if you want to be on that side of it, here's what it means to be faithful to Christ, to imitate Christ. What does it mean to imitate Christ? I'll sum it up for you. To love God with everything in you and to love who? Your neighbor. This always brings it home for us. It sounds cheesy and watered down and elementary, but your compromise always comes down to who you put first in the big and the small things. It always comes down to this. It can be something small as at work. It can be something big as the way that you see the war on terror, how you vote. Every single thing comes back to how I handle my money, who I invest my time in, 
every single thing you do comes back to who matters most to you. This is the challenge of faithfulness to Christ. If you want to be someone who's standing with him in the white robe, which just means if you want to be someone who makes it to the finish line with Christ, here's what it means. To put Jesus first, to stay faithful, to not compromise, means to live your life putting everyone else first. And, and, you know, we can amen and nod and everything we want to, but that challenge will get you every single time. Every single time. Would you guys stand with me? Well, we ended on a very encouraging high note. Here's the encouragement part about it. The beautiful thing about this entire passage with the letters to the churches is the promise on the other side. There's always that correction saying, hey, you are not imitating Christ, which means you are not following Christ. And by the way, this sounds a lot like John. John's also the one who says what? If you can't love your brother who you see, you can't love God who you don't. Meaning if you don't walk in love, you don't know God. Which is also his way of saying you're not going to make it with Jesus. Sounds like John. The encouraging part about John and about this, this letter is that promise, meaning if you would start now, all the years or days that you haven't, I'm not even going to acknowledge that. Start fresh now. Commit to Christ, which means to live like Christ. If you want your Savior to save you in the end, then you better allow Him to be your Lord now. Amen. That was a good one. Huh? Let's pray. Father, we love you. Uh, Lord Jesus, we just desired that we would imitate the model that you set forth. And Holy Spirit, we welcome you, that you would move to bring all these instructions to life to us. They wouldn't just be words. We, with faith, declare that we have ears to hear, and we ask, Spirit of God, that you would speak to us right now. Where have we compromised? Where have we put our commitment to Christ second? Where have we failed to imitate the model of Jesus? Where have we failed to put Jesus, to put kingdom, to put eternity, to put loving our neighbors first? Where have we allowed this world and this society to tell us what matters most? And how do we make it? So this morning, we're going to end here with communion. The way this works is very simple. One of the things that we're told about communion from the Apostle Paul is that every single time that we take it, we are taking it and we are proclaiming the return of the King. Every time we take this and we remember the way that He left this world, we are also reminding ourselves of how He's going to return.